Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Beatrice Alari is an Associate Professor and Chair of Music Teaching and Learning at the University of Southern California. She has conducted extensive research with infants, children and adolescents to examine the intersections between musical participation, child development, cognition and culture. As a Brazilian native, Beatrice identifies with Latin American communities of Southern California. Her research focuses largely on the musical experiences of Latino children with their families, in the home, at schools and in communities. Beatrice is a research fellow at USC's Brain and Creativity Institute and collaborates regularly with colleagues from various fields in Brazil, Portugal, Spain, UK, USA and Hong Kong. Her research has appeared in the Journal of Cross-Cultural Psychology, the Journal of Musical Education, Music and Science, Proceedings of the New York Academy of Sciences, and Psychology of Music. She is also a co-editor of the Rutledge Companion to Interdisciplinary Studies in Singing, Volume 1, um, Music in Early Childhood, Multidisciplinary Perspectives and Interdisciplinary Exchanges, and Children's Home Musical Experiences Across the World. As a violinist by training, Beatrice is a former early childhood and elementary music educator. Beatrice, good, good morning to, to you and good evening for us. Um, I think I, I'm so looking forward to speaking to you about your your all your research um, and your really interesting findings. So um, I'm just going to jump right in and get started. So you are an associate professor in music teaching and learning um, and you've conducted a variety of interdisciplinary research in some really fascinating areas with infants, children and teens. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how you got into this area of study? Sure. So I started, you know, just just to go back a little bit, I started uh, learning music when I was about 10. And I think from the moment I started, I knew that I would be teaching music and working with young people. I, I was back then I was thinking either I'm going to be a school teacher, a primary school teacher, or I'm going to be a music teacher. That, that was something that was very clear. So that's why I did. You know, I went to college and I got a music degree. I worked with kids from very early on. I taught Suzuki first and school and and orchestra for kids and all of that. But then when, when I went to grad school, I wanted to learn a bit more, become a better teacher, learn a little bit of research. I came across the work of a researcher in the U.S., Jane Stanley, who was actually doing research with premature babies. Okay. And it was the first time that I, I guess in my little world, you know, started thinking that, well, music can do more things for people than I had ever imagined. Mm. Long story short, it didn't quite work for me to go into music therapy. I didn't have like the clinical training and all of that. But I, okay. I landed in an infant speech perception lab to do research with babies. So they were studying speech and I proposed, can I do a music study? And the question I wanted to study back then was I wanted to understand if babies and, and children could listen to music or memorize music that was a little more complicated than we typically play for them. Okay. Because I grew up in Brazil and, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up with a lot of different rhythms and things that are, people would probably consider very complicated, um, mm -hmm. rhythmically speaking. Sure. And no one ever questioned. It was just part of culture. So I always imagine, you know, we create this culture for children and yes, there are things that are very appropriate, but children, you know, our ears don't have lids yeah. into all kinds of things and they are developing. And what do we know about that? And that's what we found, you know, my dissertation many, many years ago that babies can actually remember music. And in that case, it was music of Ravel and we had, you know, orchestrations and we had piano music. So really showing that, yes, they can, you know, if you repeat and if, with enough repetition. Music is all about repetition. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I got into it. And then, of course, I like doing this type of research. And then mm -hmm. I continued doing research with babies. And then I had my own kids. And then as my kids grew, I also wanted to know, oh, I'm seeing different things and I need to explore them. So that's how I kind of got into it, you know, less violin playing and now more, you know, doing research and trying to understand music in, in the world of children and now adolescents. I have a, a teenager at home, so <laughs> the questions are, you know, what's this that you're listening to? What's going on? <laughs> but that, that's fascinating, though. It's, it's so nice to hear that kind of career progression of, of where you started and, like you say, had such a clear idea or vision of where you were going to go and then just kind of how you've 
I suppose doors have opened over time and, and you've gone through them to investigate things and love the fact that your own children are your muse for <laughs> further research to find out what's going on with them as they developmentally change in the house. Yeah, and sometimes in in funny ways, right? Mm. So one of my kids now listens to a lot of music that she, she was telling me, oh, this is Vocaloid music. And I'm like, what? I have no idea what that is. So I have to do some research to catch up with them. And they will say, Mom, what you're listening to is old people's music. I'm like, don't say that. I'm not that old. <laughs> so interesting how we learn so much from our kids. We learn so much. I often say parenting is learning a lot about ourselves. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah, definitely. Them, yeah. Yeah, they- definitely. <laughs> oh no, totally. I think like my like my area of expertise is 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 parenting, but more mental health and trauma side of things. But yeah, I think it's always fascinating to look at how you parent and how that kind of roots back to how you were parented and things so yeah I feel like you're you're spot on I think you learn a lot through through children <laughs> and speaking of what do we know about the importance of music generally in the lives of children and especially teens so you know l- music is really a big part of children's lives and adolescence and even you know there are things that we don't really pay attention to and um, if you think about music research and even music teaching we tend to look at kids who have these skills and we're looking if they play an instrument if they sing but in reality you know from very early on children are engaged with music so think about in families when you know parents or caregivers are singing with them or listening to music moving with them and this is a time i that i really love to work with this age group because there isn't that self-awareness that we have when we're older like oh mm-hmm. I, my movements are ridiculous or no, it's, you know, you will see parents dancing, you see caregivers doing these things because it's part of parenting, it's part of being with. And it it, it shifts over time. And, and you see kids bringing music that they learn at school, that they learn with peers. Then you see teenagers being involved with all, all kinds of music and sometimes even rejecting some of the things that they did at home with family because now mm-hmm. it's not cool to do that. It's yeah. <laughs> what, you know, um, my friends are doing or my, my peer groups are doing. So there's, there's a lot of music that's have a lot of listening. Listening is a big deal, and we don't talk as much about as we talk about performing and creating and geniuses. Mm-hmm. But listening is a big, big skill. And we also know that teenagers, in particular, music is a big part of their life. They listen to more music than any other age group. So there's evidence from all over the world. They have the time. They have the energy. And there's a phenomenon that's really interesting, which we call. The reminiscence bump, and I know it has been studied in psychology in different areas, mm-hmm. but it exists in music. So, for example, during COVID, when the lockdowns, a lot of people are listening to music from their teens. That's what brought them comfort and made them feel good and made them mm-hmm. feel connected in some way. So there's something that stays, and it's all from, or most of it, from this, you know, teenage years, early mm-hmm. adulthood. So that's a very important phase of musical development, if you will. Some people even think that this is like a very important area also because it relates to how the brain is reorganizing itself and and all of that. So the other piece, it connects also to um, sociologist uh, Tia Denora in the UK. She has written about music being a technology of the self, how we use music to regulate our emotions, to connect with people, to entertain. There are all these different ways that we, we think about music, but we learn a lot about ourselves or interpersonal relationships or relationships with ourselves as well. So for teenagers, that's super important. And it's also a badge of identity, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you listen to in your peer groups, it's really important. And they might have different preferences because I've been thinking a lot about that. You know, in my days, you used to buy that LP and everybody listened to the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Now they have access to this huge library of music from all over the world, their preferences when you do studies, and we saw that in our own research several times, when you ask teens, what are you listening to? They're all listening to different things. Mm-hmm. It's like we're all listening to like in my days, Nirvana or Queen or yeah. you know Beatles or whatever, but they have this very eclectic musical taste. So it is, it is very, very important to them. And it's something that... Um, People, are you capitalizing on these preferences to do music therapy or work with juvenile offenders? I mean, there's a lot that's being done about music as this important element in people's lives, especially in the lives of young people, teenagers and and young adults. Yeah, and that's such an interesting point of getting flashbacks to my own teenage (laughs) 
life when you were talking there but yeah I mean that was the case it was you were downloading off music off sites or there wasn't Spotify or Apple Music or all these other things and I feel like like you say everyone was just listening to the one thing or you were trying to fit in with that peer group and say you were listening to it but maybe you weren't but yeah with with the rise of kind of all these platforms now that are recommending music to you all the time from different spaces so yeah their their world has opened up massively to lots of different things that maybe we didn't have at that time so yeah it really really interesting even you're talking about the psychology and their brains kind of rewiring at that point and it's shaping and just oh it's fascinating and we're interviewing you as our researcher of the month after a publication of a really fascinating paper at the beginning of the year titled music participation and positive youth development in middle school you're based in the US and your young people in your study were in middle school so probably about an average age of around 12 for UK listeners. Before we talk in more detail about your paper's findings, could you please talk us through what the research shows about the impact of engagement with music generally on young people's socio-emotional well-being and self-regulation? Sure. So let's start with social-emotional well-being. So Mm -hmm. one thing that I I think we all agree in in different fields of music research is that music is eminently a social activity and for kids more more than ever, right? Even I, I often tell my students, even if you're listening to music on your own, somebody produced that music and you're probably thinking about social interactions. Mm. Music is a big portion of, think about situations when it's really awkward and at least there's music in the back and you can yeah. actually, you know, make conversation with people you don't know, uh, music for dancing, music for entertaining, there are all these different functions. And for children that and, and adolescents, that's that's really big. Now, what the research shows is that you know, aside from strengthening group bonds or putting us in contact with other people, there is, when you think about social emotional learning, there are different parts of it, right? That you could, you could think of, you know, just for social behaviors. So being nice to people, helping, sharing, caring. You can also think about social cognition, how you think about different groups based on the music that they listen to or they engage with. So if I ask my college students today, what's a classical musician like versus, or a person who listens to classical music, versus a person who listens to, say, rap or pop, mm. they're probably going to define, you know, describe different people, right? Sure. Different characteristics, or even if they're extroverted, or if they're young, there are all these stereotypes, so to speak, that are connected to genres. Mm-hmm. And they also connect to young people. Now, when we look at the research, what do we know about the empirical research? So people who have done, say, interventions for a whole year, for six months, for a month, uh, with music and different groups, the evidence is, is mixed. And why? Because some people have used questionnaires. And questionnaires mm. usually is where you find, you know, shaky evidence. But when you see tests of things where you're looking at tests of empathy, where you're looking at prosocial behaviors, so you have tests where you have kids, they listen to music or they do music with other people. There's a study with four-year-olds that's very cool that Kids who played musically together, like simple rounds, things that we've all done as little kids. Yeah. They help people more than kids who just play together. Wow. So there seems to be something connected to this act of musicking. And in the UK, Professor Ian Cross at Cambridge is someone who wrote about, you know, music as something that allows us to experience this sense of we-ness, right? Because we have to be together in time. We can disagree in everything in our lives. But the moment we want to play together, sing together, dance, we need to be together in time. We need to yeah. synchronize our bodies or voices or instruments, right? And he says, what does that, that does is because music means different things for different people, the moment we're doing that, we feel there's a safe space, so to speak. We, are, we feel together and the sense of the self kind of disappears. So that's a time when in that moment, we're together, right? Yeah. And, and this is the power of music. So we see in studies that use this capacity to syn- synchronize, we also see, you know, some effects. Well, whether it's the music or being together in time, that's the discussion. So some people look like, like swings. If you swing and there's no music, yeah, that also promote the same thing or running in a treadmill. But studies with kids, what we see is there's a, a body of studies very recent showing that there are some social effects that we see, for example, in our own study, a longitudinal work we did in Los Angeles with three groups, music, sports, and a control group. Mm -hmm. We found that kids who are in music and sports 
their parents rated them as less aggressive, as less hyperactive over four or five years. So they started when they're about six or seven and then mm-hmm. they're preteens. This is something from parental reports. So we saw that we just did a, a recent study in Portugal. We found similar things with music and drama. Okay. So there's something so is it the collective aspect? Is it the but there seems to be something about, you know, the music in peace. And of course, music being this very important element of emotions, right? The kids can regulate emotions. Mm-hmm. So we see studies we're beginning to see more of these experimental work. We see a lot of clinical work showing the um, impact of like songwriting with kids who have you know high levels of aggression or kids yeah. who have been in, incarcerated or there's a lot of literature that we're seeing, especially from the clinical side. So very, very important. Now, in terms of self-regulation, there's a lot of evidence connecting music learning with executive function skills. So really, you know, kids being able to have more cognitive flexibility. There are some studies on working memory, especially with young kids. Mm -hmm. There's something about learning music formally over time. And I think it makes sense if you think of, you know, music, you have to learn, you have to repeat a lot. You have to develop that patience, which is all for kids. You have to be, if you're doing with young kids, there's turn-taking, a lot of turn-taking. They have to learn little kids. That's very hard. But Mm -hmm. it's your turn to sing. It's somebody else's turn. Or you're playing the drums, you're not, you know, alternating. There are things that we do, singing in your head. There are all these things that, you know, potentially develop these executive function skills. But there's quite a lot of evidence now showing um, this this connection and mm-hmm. what it is. And in our own research lab here in, in Los Angeles, we are doing another study where we're looking developmentally also at the brains of, of kids and teenagers, you know, what's going on and trying to probe this this question a little bit more. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, really, really resonating with me. You're talking about the connectedness and that we-ness where everyone's together. And I, I think like I, I used to work with young children age zero to three, which I, I know is not a, not a teenager, but even we had some kids in those groups who were nonverbal or were maybe displaying some signs of autism and we would sing nursery rhymes and do actions. And despite the fact those children couldn't speak, they were still able to do the actions and they knew when to kind of like say, and I think like, again, it's just kind of speaks to how powerful music can be in, in that role of kind of making even children that maybe can't connect on a verbal level but can still feel part of that. So yeah, I, I really, that was just kind of resonating with me there when you were talking about connected connectedness. And do we know if engagement with music has an impact on academic achievement and, and other subjects other than music? This is a great question because it has been studied for a long time. So you've probably heard about the Mozart effect, which was mm, yeah. it was very big. So this idea that music could really enhance your academic skills. And in that case, it was cognitive abilities. You're looking at spatial abilities, right? So the ability like to put a puzzle together. So this was a study that wasn't replicated. Mm-hmm. So many people tried, so there was a lot of discussion about the Mozart effect, although the idea got out very quickly. And so you had daycares here in the U.S. playing Mozart instead of children's songs because yeah. they were more intelligent. There was a governor that distributed CDs to all newborns because they would become more intelligent in the long run. Brilliant. And so, you know, this, that, that's... And I think the question that has been asked is there are folks still looking at music and math and music and, and foreign languages. So one of the one of the pieces is in this big area of cognitive transfers, whether, you know, is it near transfer, like areas that are close, like music and speech mm-hmm. versus areas that are far, like music and we'll do something if I'm cooking or, you know, yeah. if something in sports. So there's the, the near. And we've seen more evidence for near transfer areas that are close by than far transfer. Okay. The effect would be like far transfer. But one of the things that we see in these studies, and as far as I've been asking, is it the chicken or the egg? In other words, they know that some of the smartest kids are the ones who tend to go into music. So sure. is it because they already had these, in terms of you know intelligence or cognitive abilities? Mm-hmm. The other piece is the, the nature of programs. Because as we know, there are strong programs or not so strong programs. There are great teachers out there. Some are not so great. And we know that, for instance, great teachers make a huge difference, right? It doesn't matter where they are. They can, you know, do miracles. 
So there's that. And also the intensity. Is it a program that's very intense and you're making kids practice and do things? And I know you had a question about practicing, which is a huge deal. Yeah. Is it a program that is like, oh, you just go and you listen? You know, there's that piece as well. But there is some evidence for near transfer. That's what we see. So, you know, speak, there, there are some studies looking at phonological awareness, like pre-reading skills. So we mm-hmm. see that. There are connections there. But with far transfer, that that's a little more complicated. I mean, we could spend an hour talking about it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Maybe we'll have you back on again and we can just spend some time <laughs> talking about that. And actually, this I'm putting you a bit on the spot, but we've had a few questions actually come up recently from schools who have been asking us about music ability or music and, and creativity. And I was just wondering if you could speak at all about any research around music and creativity and whether involvement in music can make children more creative if there's a relationship there do you know any research out there that's that discusses that there are some studies looking at you know things like whether kids become more or they they will score higher in tests of things like divergent thinking right so if you give them for example you say oh here's a newspaper find in one minute many many ways to use a newspaper right so that that's a test of divergent thinking so getting kids to so there are some studies looking at that, but what many of these studies will, will discuss is, again, the nature of the music programs, whether, sure. whether it's a program where you're just imitating your teacher or you're having opportunities to actually improvise or create your own music. So how does that, and this is a question that a lot of folks are studying right now, you know, mm. there's a lot of emphasis these days, especially with teenagers on songwriting, lots of songwriting programs, but they're not all the same. So how, you know, what, what what do we know about this art form and getting kids to engage with this art form and their creative skills in other areas? That's another, you know, not just in music, but outside. Mm-hmm. Does that help them? And my hunch would be that, yes, it would, right? If you have opportunities to actually, you know, engage with different materials, different ideas, hopefully you'll transfer that to other things. But this is research that, you know, we can... We'll be hearing more, I think, in the very in the next couple of months for sure. Mm, amazing! No, that's that's really really interesting. And one of your papers focuses on this this positive youth development. And what do we mean by that? And what are some of the developmental assets that contribute to it? Sure. So you know, positive youth development. There, there. I guess a couple of ways to think of it. For some people, it's really this approach to programs and policies that serve young people. Some people like to think of it as a philosophy, as a way of thinking. And for some people, like myself, I like to think of it as a developmental process. But where does it come from? So there are several, of course, several scholars looking at it. But one of them, Professor Richard Lerner at Tufts University, I know that his group has drawn from programs and also from developmental literature to come up with this idea that, you know, we have to focus on the positive. Why? Because when we think of adolescence, I don't know in the UK, but here in the US, it's still this idea, adolescence is the troublesome time, right? Mm, so yeah. it's like, oh, poor you, you're getting to that age, right? I hear that from, you know, fellow parents <laughs> yeah. or people saying, oh, you know, it's a time of crisis. And this has been portrayed in the literature for a very long time. And I think now coming out of COVID, and this is the piece that I, that's why I got interested in this, is we just talked about deficit, everything that kids lost, everything that, oh, uh, lots of articles, it's a lost generation in the newspaper, Mm -hmm. you know, if we don't do something. And then PYD, uh, what they will say is, instead of looking at everything that's bad and risk, and why don't we look at things that will contribute to positive development in young people? And so they came up through years of study with these five, they say that they're the five components of PYD, which is developing competencies, confidence. Adolescents need to be confident about the things they do, about who they are, connection. They don't want to be disconnected from the world, from peers, from what's Mm -hmm. going on, character, and also being people who care and who are compassionate. Mm-hmm. And what this scholar will say is that when you develop these five elements, you might have a sixth one which is contribution. That's the way that we'll see them contributing to society. And they've developed all these different instruments for you to measure you know, positive youth development. It has been used in after-school programs in the U.S. There's several organizations that have. So it's a very tested model and way mm-hmm. of thinking about young people. And for me, it was really this, I guess, wake-up call from COVID and thinking, 
why are we just looking at everything that they can't do? Why don't we look at what they can and where they are and how can we support them as teachers, as parents, as members of community? So that's what KYD is. Excellent. No, I, I think that's such a, a valid point because I, I know, yeah, in the UK, you know, and I was involved in some of the governmental reports around the impact of COVID in the UK and the lockdowns. And and you're right, it was, there was all these messages around, like you say, lost generation, learning loss, they've lost this, they've lost social connection, everything. Yeah, very kind of, maybe not intentional, but very negative messages all the time. And, and I, I think that creates a lot of kind of worry and panic in parents as well as uh, like kind of worrying for their teenagers as well as as the teenagers themselves so yeah that's it's really refreshing to hear a focus more on the positive sides or like you say what like let's not focus on what they've lost or what they can't do but what they can do and yeah I really like the description there are the the five maybe six c's on yeah I think that's that's great and can you tell us a little bit about your study, what you sought to investigate, the the methods that you used and the demographics of the of the participants? Sure. So this this study came about, you know, during the pandemic, a, a large instrument manufacturer here in the US reached out and said, oh, we would like you to do a study for us. You know, we have this new program that started during the pandemic that's all remote. And uh, would you be interested in in doing this work with these middle schoolers or children 12 to 14. And I said, okay. But I said, you know, I'm interested in look, I'm not interested in academic achievement for this. I think they've been going through so much right now. Yeah. I want to know how are the teens doing? And, and one of my questions was, okay, this is a new program, but some schools already had programs that are now either on pause or being Mm -hmm. adapted to the lockdown. This was right in the middle of lockdown. So I wanted to understand, you know, is music helping them in any way? And so in relationship to positive youth development, I was also thinking, what are these kids thinking in terms of the future? So the same group at, at Tufts, they have this other measure called hopeful future expectations, where kids think about the future and how do you see yourself? So I was curious about that, especially in the middle of the pandemic. And what's their connection to school, especially now that they're at home and school is something very awkward yeah. in school, what's going on. So that's when we designed this study. Now, this program, the way it, it was set up, it was all done online. The, the students received an instrument for free and they got to keep it. It was either a guitar, a bass, um, electric bass, guitar, electric guitar, or an ukulele. Wow. They would pick the instrument, they would send first come, first serve, mm-hmm. and then they would group them. What, what was very interesting was kids from different schools. So you would have kids from this, these are, this is a very large public school district here. So you have kids in the very wealthy areas and kids in the very underserved areas. And for the first time, they're together on Zoom with a music teacher from the district who mm-hmm. would be, you know, facilitating the lessons. So it was all electric bass, all of all on Zoom. They had they they had their materials. They had access to the, their own app that all for free the kids could use. So this was the main population. But we were also interested in are there kids who are not in this program because it would be interesting to see. Kids who were in the orchestras before, in the band. Yeah, yeah. And by the time we collected data, got all the approvals, the study actually happened when they, they were beginning to go back to school. So okay. they had just gone back. But the program continued online, the music program, this music program. So we had, in total, about 200 kids who participated, who completed the whole thing, 120. And that's kind of expected because they're teenagers. They started, they left it off in the middle or... <laughs> Yep. So I'll come back and they didn't. So we just considered everyone who did everything. That's mm-hmm. that was our criteria. We had about fifty-nine boys and this group's the majority sixth graders here, so about twelve. And then we had some seventh and a similar number of seventh and eighth graders. The vast majority of them were Latinos. So you know, Los Angeles is a very Latin American city, a large mm-hmm. portion of the population speaks Spanish. So it really reflected our city. And what was interesting, there are 77 middle schools in the district. We represented 52 of them, which was wow, pretty good. Wow, that's we great. People from all over to participate. It was all done online. And so the things we did was there's this short questionnaire of positive youth development that had questions like, on a five-point scale, tell me if you you know how much you agree with this. So one is I do not agree, and five, I agree a lot. And I do very well in my classwork at school. So that would be you know, competence. Mm-hmm. And they're not music related. People ask me this question. This question is not about music. It's about yeah, general, in yeah. general, right? 
Then we also ask hopeful future expectations. So think about how you see your future, how you, you see yourself being healthy, being safe, the same thing. And then a scale of school connectedness. The last thing we asked was about musical prep. What do you do musically? What do you like? Do you play an instrument? Are you in a music program? If you are, what instrument do you play? What do you mm -hmm. listen to? That was the most interesting thing for me to see. What they listen to, many bands I have ne never heard of. <laughs> I got to learn a lot. But those are the questions. And what was interesting, because we had this distribution across the district, we had kids from very, very wealthy areas. Like, And I mean really wealthy kids who might have you know, helicopters at home and you name it. Wow. From kids who are, you know, the families are struggling. You might have mm -hmm. three families living in the same house and parents doing all kinds of jobs, single families. So you had this big distribution. So it gave us a lot of ideas into what's happening with them musically. So that was the population. Wow. And I suppose that must be the beauty of doing that kind of research. I know they were starting to go back to school by the time it kicked off, but the beauty of doing things online I mean correct me if I'm wrong but I imagine there would be very few other instances where maybe those children would interact or would mix so actually really nice to see them again coming back to that connectedness they're they're all there for the same reason they've all got access to the same instruments they're do you know it's equal equal access to these kind of things whereas maybe that wouldn't happen in other circumstances so yeah really but fantastic to have such a wide variety of children involved representing such a wide demographic and so if correct me if I'm wrong but did you say so about 59 boys so was that kind of equal near enough equal boys and girls or was that more boys in the study than girls it was quite equal we had we also had we had 51 girls and we had about 11 kids who said I do not want to okay Either I'm not binary or I don't want to answer that question. Yeah. I thought it was important because we realized that in a lot of these studies, it's always boys and girls, of right? Of course, yeah. That yeah. doesn't reflect gender today. So it's mm -hmm. very important to and get give kids, an, this was all anonymous. So sure. we told kids, you know, no one will know. We don't know your identity, so feel free to answer. Yeah, we were happy to see that they were they felt comfortable to to, to identify as as however they wanted. That's that's brilliant because that's what I was going to ask as well. Is that did did gender whether they identified male, female, non-binary, or other? Did that did did you find that gender had an impact on any of the results from the study? It did. It did on measures of positive youth development, okay. and so that for us was very something to really think about because uh, our non-binary students are the ones who preferred not to you know, state their gender, they're the ones who scored lower in overall positive youth development, which is concerning. Mm -hmm. And also in connection in relationship to girls when you compare it to the group of girls, they also scored lower in confidence and connection than boys. So confidence, this, this is a big deal, knowing how much bullying there is with this population, how, yeah. you know, so we need to really look at these issues it's very and it's very important for families as well and you're putting kids in school you want your kids to be in a place where they feel they're connected that they're developing health you know in a healthy way and so we were very concerned I think to me this is one of the main findings that I wanted to discuss when we looked at the data yes the music of course I'm the music person yes yeah, yeah. it's like okay this is very eye-opening we need to really delve more deeply into these questions and revisit this in some way because we know it has an impact on schools, families, and community. Absolutely, no, definitely, and a very, a very important, and obviously something as your duty as a researcher, I think, is to look at everything, not just the key areas that you're interested in. So you end the paper with a really lovely quote from a student, and I'll just read the quote out now. So they said, "Music is the closest thing to a time machine that we will ever have." When we want to transport ourselves into another time or place, we can listen to music or play our instruments and feel those emotions. Being in the music program has helped me find myself, my peace and my place in school. So that was a seventh grade student that said that, which is just really, really heartwarming. So this sounds like a, a really optimistic response and a real testimony to the, the music education and engagement. But I know you obviously we were just talking there as well about some differences across across genders. But in terms of that kind of optimistic response, did, did you find that across the results generally that it, it, the kind of that was the the optimism was there or not so much? 
<laughs> but we found some interesting things. So, for instance, you know, this this program, that this new popular music program, um, had been in existence for a short amount of time. So, students who started music lessons earlier, and they they were mainly not in that program because mm-hmm. this was a program that had just started. So, kids who had been doing orchestra, they were in early childhood programs. They were the ones who scored higher in hopeful future expectations. Okay. So that was very interesting because we have seen, and of course, this is a study that's just like a snapshot. It's very important for listeners to know we didn't do before and after. So Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, what's going on? And let's try to understand what's in this picture, right? That's the way I like to think of it. But it was interesting that it, it, it connects to other research that we found that when kids start earlier, there are some benefits to social development. So there are some studies showing kids might exhibit more empathic responses when they started music before the age of seven. Okay. We don't know why, but there's something there that we need to further explore. So here we did find that too. We also found that students who had been in programs in and out of school for longer mm-hmm. were students who actually scored higher in competence than kids who were just in this popular new popular music program. Okay. So there were some differences between the groups of kids depending on their after-school programs, because this was also an after-school program. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we found was that this program, they, it served many students from low SES. So there was a very important function, although, you know, there's music in many schools. California is it's a little bit different, I guess, in other states, because sure. some schools will have a lot of music, some won't. Legislation is, you know, has changed over the years. But the program really gave access to kids who perhaps wouldn't have had. Yeah. Maybe yeah. they were in schools that were focusing a lot on language learning because there are lots of English language learners. So there mm-hmm. are lots of different pieces to unpack here. But we did see some, the hopeful future expectations were the piece that I like the most, you know, thinking I'm glad because kids are going through so much right now and they yeah. still see that there's hope in the future. They are the future, right? Yeah. I say, but it's true, you know. Yeah, definitely. And and yeah, as you say, really nice to see that finding come out that actually they, they're also feeling feeling hopeful, which again, like what we've been talking about, is nice, some nice positive messages to come out as opposed to lots of more negative doom and gloom messages that have come off the back of the, the pandemic. And the programme that you focused on in the study is used in the US and was designed in the wake of the pandemic, which we have talked about, especially because of the educational challenges of lockdown. I think that it capitalised on students' musical preferences, popular music, digital methods and teens' sense of agency. We've talked a bit, but can you tell us a bit more about all of those kind of aspects? And is it still being used now? And do we know whether it's more widely available now? Because it sounds like it had some kind of really positive results. Are there any similar interventions that you would recommend as as well that you know of that are ongoing at the moment? Sure. So the program continues. And I also had that question, will they stop once kids go back? But Mm. I think the reception was really good from the families because, you know, we know as parents, like you're driving kids in different places if they have activities. Well, this is done at home. Mm-hmm. And of course, the issue of access for many families, I recognize that. But, you know, the, the, there was that be so very well we see from the families, the kids, the fact that it was a free program. But one of the things that you mentioned it was the fact that kids were learning with kids from other schools. This yeah. came up from the teachers and from from the students themselves and their comments, they said, it's so cool. There's a kid who's from the very wealthy neighbor and he plays guitar the same way as I do. Yeah. These comments, when you're 12, I think it really matters. You're seeing this, you know, maybe an area you don't feel that's your community. Well, there's a kid there just like me, right? And that was a great message. In fact, there was one, we did interviews with the teachers as well. And one of the teachers said, I just love it because I open my Zoom and I see Los Angeles. So there's their kids backgrounds different areas and it makes me very happy in 30 something years of teaching i don't have that i teach in one school and mm-hmm. now i have you know these experiences and they also got to perform so they they're still doing the program continues Excellent. to be online the middle school program but they also started an elementary program that's in person and that there was an artist that donated ukuleles and money and all of that wow. so they're doing in person and i think this is third grade so okay comes and they do it in the classroom and I think they're working, you know, what's the curriculum going to look like if these kids, will these kids later transition to the middle school program? I know they were also thinking about high school. High school is a little bit different because of the structure of classes. Sure, yeah. 
there was that idea to expand it. So it is still ongoing. They've served a very large population. And I think it was it, it's a good model in terms of how, you know, instrument makers, if they are able, why not, right? Yeah. Be engaged with these foundations and, and charities and offer alternatives. As a family, you know, for families, I know that families are very pleased with the fact that the kids get what, and they can do it from home. And there's not all the back and forth that a lot of music programs require. Yeah. And I, I love that message as well. Like you said, you know, I don't know, we've, we've touched on it, but just for someone from maybe a less lesser served community, seeing someone from kind of a, a more wealthy community and saying, you know, we're, we're the same, like we're, we're starting at the same level, we're learning at the same pace, you know, we're struggling with the same. I think that's such a nice, a nice leveler or a nice equalizer for, for children to, to experience and to see firsthand. So I, I think that's really great. And I know that you were talking there about some of the other findings that that children who had maybe been involved in music programs, like you say, with orchestra or band previously, had you seen some interesting findings from them? And I suppose off off the back of that, do you think that music lessons at school could or should be used as a, a vehicle for building children's emotional literacy? I think so. I think you know, music, and 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 I think. Uh, physical education, you know, this is where they come together in many ways. This is a really good place to learn, mm-hmm. to to work on emotions. To talk, and, and I think what's nice about music, you can always attribute it to the artist. And I see teenagers do that. And I know yeah. they're talking, oh, you know, this piece, I hear this, this, this. Like, okay, you hear or did the artist, you know. So there's this conversation that you can engage in and, and say, yeah, sometimes it's okay to be angry or, you know, how mm-hmm. do we communicate, you know. And it can be as explicit or as implicit. What I just think is what I've seen at least and, and, and here was where my parenting or, or where my parenting hat <laughs> is when it's very explicit, sometimes teenagers don't like that. They don't want like, okay, uh, or, or to be seen talking about my own emotions. Sure. Yeah. Class, right. But when teachers are skillful and they say, okay, we're still, we're learning music and here's a passage where we can express this and this, or how can we do that? It seems to work better, but I, I guess it varies across communities. Maybe if you're doing popular music, it's a different kind of setting. You might have a smaller group and they build these group uh, connections and they might fight even about the song that you're going <laughs> to yeah. not right. But they're exercising all of that. And I think music is really good for that, but it has to be in a very organic way, the way sure. we do it. You know, I worry mm-hmm. about, okay, let's have now tests of, musical emotions you know I don't know that that would be very effective you know it's really using how we use in everyday life yeah definitely you know talk about what's your preference what do you like why do you like this artist yeah I see this with my college students you know first year students and you ask what do they like and their eyes light up and they start saying I like this because yes it's angry but it's not the same angry as when I have an argument with my mom or things like that so, you know, it, it's a good channel for that. I think it, in popular music in particular, I think can be really, really useful for yeah. them to express and, and discuss and, and work through emotions. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, I think you're you're spot on with that. And it is really interesting to think about how you can use music, as you say, as a, a vehicle for talking about things or even, I suppose, in music lessons around practicing an instrument. I think when teenagers or adolescents have something to do they feel a little bit less vulnerable and maybe able to talk about things because the focus isn't really so much on what they're saying but more on what they're doing so it's it's kind of a nice a nice way to kind of start a conversation like you say but it's it's organic and it's not kind of being forced which I think is the main the main thing and coming on to a few practical considerations when introducing formal music tuition into family life for example parents sometimes worry about when they're their child is ready to start music lessons. So do you have any advice for parents listening around that? Sure. I think, you know, in, in our own research, we found that, you know, parents, they notice that children have musical proclivities or they like music from very early on, right? So if you ask, well, when he was two, he was singing or he was dancing or he, you would do this or we, you know, so it starts very early. And of course, there's a, a moment when they say, when should I start and what instrument and how do I go? Should I do early childhood music first? And there are all these questions that come up. I think the big question is when to start. I always tell parents, 
is if you want to start, you need to also, what is your disposition to assist, right? Mm -hmm. There, but also to learn that there'll be a moment that you're going to have to back off, right? As kids growing up and developing their competencies. Because I've seen a lot of parents who say, okay, here's a music student, go, you do your thing, and I'm here looking at my phone, right? That's yeah. how it work, right? Yeah. Need, especially when they're beginning, you know, setting up the environment really helps. But I, I, we saw it here at home. There was a, a point where our daughter said, no, we don't want you. I, we don't want you in, and I don't want you in my lessons anymore because you keep making those faces. And I'm like, <laughs> those faces? Maybe I am. Right, but I understand, and and I and talking to music teachers, we see that a lot. there's a moment when okay, now it's a teacher in you, right? Mm-hmm. Now you can walk on and develop those skills. Yeah. But I think it's really important for parents to know how much are they willing to, you know, and 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 to deal with and be open that there will be or maybe you're doing too much. There are parents, mm-hmm. teachers will say, oh my gosh, that parent, right? You don't want to be that parent. Yeah, it's always on the teacher's neck, but yeah. you want to be supportive and and let the kid you know, develop and then at a certain time, okay, backing off, just listening from afar and yeah. Not making any faces, not doing anything. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I think that's really interesting though, because I think a lot of people probably would think the main question should be about, like you say, when to start and what instrument to take up or if it's singing or guitar or drums or whatever it might be. But actually parents also need to then ask themselves if they're ready to invest the time and like you say, be supportive and kind of, I suppose, read their child in terms of maybe when they want need them to back off a little bit or need them to be a bit more supportive. So yeah, that's that's really interesting that there are other questions for parents to to think about and consider before starting to think about music lessons and I think in terms of music lessons I know that nudging children to practice can sometimes be very challenging <laughs> so do you have any practical tips for for parents when talking about practicing instruments so I will just quote you know one of my child's previous teachers who said this is the hardest thing you will ever do because practicing is very hard yeah you know so you need to be very patient because music is about repetition and and I think I, I like to think of it you know the the more your you, the kids are learning to practice you're learning to redo something which mm-hmm. is not you know in, in school they do it but in music it involves emotions I always I we sometimes see kids cry in music lessons because sure. it's not coming you know there's that frustration so parents have to be ready to deal with that but that kids are also very different. So you can buy a book on how to get your kids to practice. Well, for some kids, these practicing charts, they really work. For mm-hmm. other kids, it doesn't. So I think it's really figuring out, you know, what are some of the tools? But you might have to try several of them, right? So with our youngest, there was a moment when we had like, okay, let's get a fishing game. So we had this fishing game with these little fishing rods. And then each one would have play this song, play this note. So that was the <laughs> way which was like three or four. And that's where... You know, we would have our 10 minutes of fun. And, and of course, the, the, she got tired of the game. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to come up with but that was the way it worked. With the other child, it was like, oh, there's a chart. And, you know, from very early, okay, I've done it, done. Mm-hmm. And they're very different. And understanding that it's okay, but be patient because it is hard. There will be moments of frustration and you, you need to take a deep breath. Oh, okay. Or they will procrastinate. So I'll do it later. Like, <laughs> no, we need to do it now. Yeah. There's, there's plenty of literature, but there isn't a one size fits all in, in my experience. I mean, you you know, you have to really find and work with your teacher. Mm-hmm. What works? Look, give me some tools. Let's try this one, this one, this one. And they might change over time and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, well that's it. I mean, your 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 child is, is changing over time. So maybe the ways in which they engage will it's uh, yeah, natural to yeah, understand. You know, the practice chart is not gonna work for ten years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Straight. That's what I'm learning. Yeah, perfect. In, in, in your opinion, what might be best practice for teachers in kind of primary school settings, so before high school, who may not be experienced in music, but to encourage an engagement with music in their class, especially if it's going to help promote connectedness and, and psychological well-being? I think the message, I think, for me, for teachers who did not have a chance to study music formally for whatever reason, is that everybody is musical to some extent right so this idea that only the talented can do no like we can we all listen to music we all there are ways to engage and i know i know for a fact because a lot of teachers will say oh i'm uncomfortable i, I don't want to sing in front of this well there are other things that you can do right 
We can listen to me. We can bring a musician from the community. You can ask parents in your classroom. I'm sure that in every single classroom, there is a parent who at least plays an instrument or who considers himself or herself a musician. Mm -hmm. You can bring that person in and say, would you share some music with us? We can have the, the students do projects. There are lots of ways. But I think it's really breaking up that barrier that, oh, I'm not talented. I, I didn't go to music school, hence I can't do it. Yes, you can. There are ways. Bring the music you like. Ask the kids the music. That's that's the starting point. Every kid will have a different song mm-hmm. and some will have some in common. They will engage in discussion. So conversation is one way. But if you don't want the conversation, that's okay. Bring a recording. Maybe there's a music that, a piece that everyone's listening to at the moment. Put it there. Get the kids to represent it on paper, to write a story about There's so many ways that teachers can bring it in creative and fun ways that do not feel like, oh, I'm exposing and I'm not a performer, right? But the I guess the big thing is to change the thinking. Like, yes, I am musical. Yeah, I'm not, you know, fill in the blank, the big artist that I like. Yeah. But I am somebody who, yes, my mom used to sing to me or there's a song that I used to like to dance and mm-hmm. hear that. Chances are the kids will enjoy it too because you enjoy it. So, and it's part of who you are. So I think that's where the community gets built. Yeah. Right. So doing, I've seen teachers say, oh, I just got this lesson plan and it didn't quite work because I don't like that music. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't, like, don't do it. Don't do it. Get something you like. Get something you think it's appropriate, obviously, for the children, yeah. for the you're working with, and start from there. But mm-hmm. everyone can do it. Yeah. That's such a nice message as well. Yeah, about bringing musicians in from the community or or using one of the parents or, you know, kind of like you say, just kind of starting that conversation is, um, yeah, brilliant examples. Thank you. And in terms of extracurricular music lessons, they may not be available to everyone as we've been talking about and they can be costly as well. So what would you like to see in terms of a democracy of of music access and do you think that online methods of learning as you've seen in the in your study do they play a role here I know you were mentioned there before about maybe a call to bigger music companies or or instrument companies to get involved and be charitable if that's possible yeah what are your what are your thoughts around that you know I think you know, we, we can promote music in so many ways, even as, as we were talking about the classroom teachers, you know, you might have musicians in the community. That's one way that you can bring opportunities to your schools, to your communities, to your churches, to different places. I think online approaches are one way that you could do it, but it's not for every age. I don't think for young children, that's the best way. You want them yeah. to gather in a room and playing and singing and enjoying and touching that guitar and doing all these things that are a part of being a child. Yeah. But I think, you know, musicians, in my experience, and I think this is one of the things I like about this profession, of course, there are, there are people with different personalities, but I think most people are very, there's a lot of solidarity in the community. You see musicians mm-hmm. playing with one another. During the pandemic, we saw a lot of sharing happening, right? And I hope we didn't forget it. So for instance, there was a program that was done with Brazil and Europe where students from underserved communities were getting lessons from musicians for free online. That was one way to keep them. And there was a teacher who just organized, oh, my friend plays the harp. Would you mind teaching like half an hour to this kid who who cannot afford a lesson? So there are ways that I think we as a community can create programs, create opportunities. And of course, these big corporations, they have money. They have, why not invest in kids? We are going through this Phase. I don't know in the UK, but I would assume it's similar here. We, we're seeing a lot of mental health issues with young people. Yep. Mm-hmm. We want them to be well. We want them to be in a good place. And music is not the only way. It's not a magic bullet, but it's one way that we can do it. We can do it with sports. So from my camp of music, I think there are some ways that we can, you know, like, like this program, we, we give the instruments. It's mm-hmm. not. You know, for them, it's not a big deal, but for, for the community, it is. Yeah, yeah. What a it's difference. So, giving these instruments, having opportunities for people to engage. And at a smaller level, if, even if you don't have a, a, a big corporation or a charity, you can do it at your own community. Is there a way that we can bring, maybe there's a way that once a month there's a, something and, and it, it might start little, but it might grow, right? That's how these, and they're from the bottom up. And mm-hmm. I think they, they have a lot of value for our communities. 
Yeah. And again, such a, a nice message to anyone listening that it's like you say, it might be, you might think it's a small thing, but actually it's going to make a huge difference to to those in your community. So definitely, definitely worthwhile looking into and trying to find a, a way to, to engage in that level. And can you briefly tell us about some of the other work you've done? So I know we've talked a lot about work with teens and adolescents, but in terms of some of the work you've done with younger children and with infants, can you tell us a little bit about that work? Sure. So, you know, as, as I said right at the beginning, I started mm-hmm. off doing research with babies. So these are seven-month-olds, and it was a lot of fun, um, a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was really great to work with the families, and so I wanted to look in memory we did with that population, we also looked at, you know, when babies listen to music, do they pay more, more attention to just the voice or a voice and an instrument and voices mm-hmm. went all the time. Wow. You know? Okay. Very important message because we think we need to have all these toys. No, you need somebody to sing for them. Mm-hmm. Sing for them. Go for it. Yeah. It's okay if sometimes your voice is not, you know, the qual- recording quality. It doesn't matter. They want that connection and that's where it starts. And there are lots of theories about that on and on. I've done a lot of studies with early childhood music programs as well. And I was particularly interested in executive functioning, but also in pro-social skills. So building from that idea, you know, if kids are doing music together, do they become better members of their own communities? You know, mm-hmm. are they helping or they're sharing toys with other kids? And so we, I did a couple of studies here in Los Angeles, also in other parts of the U.S. on looking at different programs. And we did find Again, kids who had been longer in these programs, we found that they tend to help more. They, there's something about maybe you learn how to share instruments, maybe mm-hmm. you learn how to take turns, and then these are three- and four-year-olds. So that was very fun to do. And then another project that I really liked that I did, and this was collaborative, I always like to work with a lot of people, yeah. called Children's Home Musical Experiences. And it was with a British scholar, Professor Susan Young, we wrote about, we had people in different parts of the world interview seven-year-olds and their parents and go to their homes and have them talk about music and the things that mattered to them. And so we wrote this book and with this group of 12 scholars from Israel, Kenya, Brazil, the US, the UK, and Denmark, Singapore, Taiwan, and I forgot the others, but <laughs> all equally important. And we all wrote what we learned about, you know, what what does it mean to be at that age when mm. And you're not like in the early years anymore, but you're not a teenager. What are the things? And we found so many things from what was very common to these these children. Like Disney is everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, the types of repertoire that they're exposed to, preferences. Mm-hmm. And we also asked them if they wanted to sing a song for us. And in some places, children would say, oh, well, I'll sing what my mom wants me to sing. Aww. And in other places, say, mom, out of the room. I'm doing the singing. So it was very interesting to see these personalities pop yeah. up. Yeah. Did you find that varied just across country and culture as well? That the kind of asking the parent to leave versus I'll sing what they want me to sing? I think it had a lot to do with parental expectations. Okay. Right or what? Or some would look at their moms and there was a little little girl, I think it was in Greece, who said, Oh, okay, now my mom wants to get coffee. Let me tell you, I really like this song. <laughs> So the mom was actually wanting to show, you know, good parenting skills, which we understand. Yeah, yeah. Parents do that. We want mm-hmm. to show that we're doing a good job. And in that case, the child just said, no, I really like the soccer song. I know it's not appropriate for kids, but hey, that's what <laughs> And then one of our colleagues went back a few years later. This was not part of the book. Mm-hmm. The, what the kids were listening to and the preferences had changed and what would they say? So it was a very you know, heartwarming project, but very interesting to see how families, there's so much in common, although we live in very different countries. With So we had pictures of the homes, we had all kinds of things that I, I really enjoy doing that. And and I continue to do longitudinal work here with, and that's big teamwork, looking at kids over time. It's such a privilege to be able to see children grow up and they're not your own children, so you don't have, you know, the colored glasses. And- yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then you see, oh my gosh, kids are thinking this. And what happened to this kid? This kid was talking about trains yesterday and now. Yeah, what a difference. Know, what's going on? And, yeah. you know, which is what we all as as parents and, and community members experience, right? But we get to see it like sort of under a microscope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So interesting. And like you say, a, a really nice, a nice privilege to to be able to have that, that look down the microscope. Um, it sounds like you've got a lot 
a lot of different things on the go at the moment, but can you tell us some of the exciting projects you're working on just now? Sure. So we're continuing with the positive youth development and hopefully we'll be able to do a before and after kind of study and mm-hmm. hopefully more kids who are not in music. This, one of the problems with that study was that we didn't attract the kids who are not interested in music. Sure. We're hoping to have, you know, and hoping that now because the schools were opening, they wouldn't allow us to go in. Yeah. So hopefully now we'll be able to go in and go to classes where the kids are not in music and they're interested in participating. So that's one of them. I'm also doing this project with a colleague in Portugal and the papers should be out soon. The one we looked at music and drama. So they're doing this this study where they followed kids for a year yep. and looked at all different aspects of development. So again, another longitudinal project. And the last one is, and th- this is not related to, well, it's related to childhood, but it's more retrospective, is looking at kids who went to a lot of after-school programs, kids from underserved areas in Brazil, mm-hmm. went after-school music programs and completed college degrees. Okay. So it's really like talking about social mobility and what's the role of these programs in their lives and and their experiences in college and what are we doing as college professors to welcome people who are first generation college students? What are we doing right and what are we doing wrong and mm-hmm. you know what can we do better? So that that's more higher education, but that's a collaboration with colleagues and in, in South America. Oh wow, fascinating. So yeah, it looks like we'll most likely have you back on at some point yeah. to talk to us about that because they all sound really, really interesting. Beatrice, thank you so much for your time. It's been so lovely to speak to you. Thank you for telling us about your really fascinating work. It's been, yeah, lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, I look forward to hearing the recording. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.